I, uh, before we get started, I'd like to, actually, if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. And as you're turning there, um, I'd like to thank you uh, for Pastor Appreciation Month. Um, the cards and gifts, I just got up here, and here's another one. Like, it's ridiculous. You guys, we have such an encouraging church, and I feel so blessed to be a pastor here. Um, I brag about our church all the time about how encouraging you guys are and how loving you are to me. And um, uh, so I want to say thank you. Every, every October, uh, I, I'm always so worried that I, I got a gift or a card and I forgot to s- send a thank you for it in the mail. And so Craig asked me if I would say this too on behalf of him, that if I didn't send you a thank you, I'm so sorry. Thank you so much for your gifts. I, I think I got everyone, but it's, it's so, like, every time I turn around, there's another gift and card. And so, um, thank you. Thank you for encouraging us as pastors. And I want to take a second, too, to remind you that um, our elders is a, is a team of pastors. Uh, we see that scripturally, that, uh, that we are um, a pastoral team. And I just want to be just really clear that the lay elders— in our church. Um, I am so thankful for them. And if you would, if you see them, just thank them. They do so much. They, they take so much off my shoulders. They do so much counseling, visiting in the hospitals. Um, I mean, just, it's amazing the, the team that we have that's leading this church, and I am blessed to be a part of that team. And so if you get a chance, you know an elder that you're close to, um, a pastor that you're close to that's not a full-time me and Craig pastor, uh, please uh, thank them thank them. And for you guys that are in here, thank you. Uh, I I, I love every one of you. So um, if you would look at verse 15, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, if you would read along with me. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all and all. If you would pray with me this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, I just pray that you're with us this morning as we go over this, this text, this, this portion of Ephesians, this prayer for the church, Lord. I thank you for inspiring Paul to write this prayer that we know Paul's heart for the church, what he prayed for the church, Lord, and inspired by new, knowing what you would have Paul pray for the church, God. Gives us insight to what is important, Lord. I pray that you're just with us, Lord, as, as we open up your word, Lord. Be with me. 
God, that I would speak truth this morning. That I would speak your words and none of my own ideas. I pray for us this morning, Lord. Open up our hearts to what you have to say in your son's name. Amen. I want to start this morning by just jumping right in. If you look at verse 15 one more time, it says this, For for this reason I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints. I do not cease to give thanks for you. This letter of Paul to to Ephesus, the the book of Ephesians, is a little bit different than most of Pauline's letters He normally starts with thanksgiving. He goes from an introduction right into thanksgiving, if you read most of Paul's letters. But in Ephesians, he waits to verse 16 to say, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Instead of starting with thanksgiving, he starts with a doxology, right? Praising God for his blessings on us. Verses 3 through 14, what we've been going over for the last, I don't know how long, Right, this doxology from eternity past to eternity future. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul wants the church to know. He wants the church to have knowledge of how blessed we are. That from eternity past, God the Father chose us. He predestined us to adoption. He set his affections on us. In this present age, God the Son redeemed us. He saved us. He bought us out of slavery. Slavery to sin. Bondage to sin. He bought us with his precious blood on the cross. He didn't leave us to ourselves. In our freedom, he gave us wisdom and insight. He gave us revelation. He gave us, gave us hope by telling us how it all ends. And then God guarantees us a future inheritance that we are co-heirs with Christ by sealing us with the Holy Spirit. Amazing blessings poured out on us. God's grace lavished on us. Paul in verses 3 through 14 praises all the the members of the Trinity for their different works within redemption. Past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, an amazing doxology, one massive sentence in Greek, 202 words long. It's like Paul couldn't wait to start praising God. He couldn't wait to tell us how blessed we are. Because Paul wanted us to know. He wants us to know. He wants us to have knowledge of our blessings. Right? He wants us to have knowledge of God's grace. In fact, verses 3 through 14, Paul tells us how blessed we are. And then in verses 17 through 23, he prays that we would understand. That we would know. That we would comprehend these blessings. Look at what it says in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, this is what Paul prayed for the church over and over again. That the Lord of, or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know. Paul wants the church to know, verse 18, what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul 
so badly wants us to know that he tells us in verses 3 through 14 then he prays we would comprehend it in verses 15 through 23 in fact he prays it twice turn to chapter 3 verse 18 Paul writes out this prayer because he wants the church to know what he prays. And he says he he prays that we, verse 18, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know, to have knowledge, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with, with all the fullness of God. I mean, why does Paul want us to know so badly? I mean, why does he want to know us to know how, how blessed we are, how, how rich we are, how gracious God is towards us? Here's why. Because if we knew, if we knew the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, if we understood how rich we truly are in Christ, It would change everything. It would change our life. In fact, let me give you an example. I've heard of a man who inherited a painting. His mom had this painting she got from a garage sale and and put it over her bed for years. After his mom died, the son kept this painting because the wife liked it. He wasn't very fond of it, but... His wife liked it, so he kept it. Years later, the wife saw a similar painting in a magazine and wondered if this painting was worth anything that they inherited from his mom. They found out it was worth $1 million. The man instantly retired, sold his house, and moved to the beach. It changed his life, the direction he was going. Here's my question. I want to think about this. What actually changed? Did the value of that painting change? No. It was always valuable. Did the wealth of the people change? And think about that clearly. Did the wealth of those, those people change? No. Right? They always owned that painting. The only thing that changed was the knowledge of how valuable that painting was. They gained knowledge of how truly rich they were. Listen, in a similar way, if you're a Christian this morning, if you've put your faith in Christ and submitted to Him as Lord, you are rich. Every spiritual blessing rich. And most of us just don't realize it. But if you knew... If you knew how how rich you truly were, it would change everything. It would change everything. I have a confession to make. This week I blew it. These power outages like really messed up my week. I'm guessing I'm not the only one. All day Thursday, in my heart, I was just throwing a pity party. Stressed and frustrated. In a bad mood. And Friday, I knew I was going to have to work all day Friday and all day Saturday studying and getting the sermon prepared. And Friday, as I'm preparing this sermon, it hit me. I forgot. I forgot how blessed I am. 
in Christ. I didn't dwell on the truth. I didn't take every thought captive. I didn't replace the lies with truth. With knowledge of how blessed I am. I didn't preach the sermon to myself. I didn't realize it until I started studying for this sermon. I have two points this morning. The two points are this. Paul's gratitude and prayer... The second point is the importance of knowledge. I want to spend some time talking about the importance of knowledge this morning. Paul's gratitude and prayer and the importance of knowledge. So let's start with Paul's gratitude and prayer. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. There's two things Paul is thankful for when it comes to this church, right? He has heard two things about this church, and he's thankful for these two things. The first one is their faith in the Lord Jesus, and the second is their love toward all the saints. Why these two things? Because they're the signs of salvation. First, faith. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. They had faith, and Paul has heard about their faith. And I want you to see what Paul adds. Because he says that they had faith in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Jesus for them wasn't just their Savior. Wasn't just their get-out-of-hell-free card. He was their Lord. He wanted to, they wanted to follow him in faith. And Paul has heard about this faith. The second thing he's heard that's brought great joy and gratitude to Paul was the love for the saints, that this church loved fellow Christians. Look what it says in verse 15, the second part. It says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. They had love for fellow Christians. That word saints means fellow Christians. And love for fellow Christians is a sign of salvation. Right? Right? First John has told us that we spent a lot of time in First John examining this, but let me just give you a verse in First John. First John three fourteen says this: We know that we have passed out of death into life. What's that? Salvation. We know that we are saved. We know that we've been regenerated. We've been born again because we love the brothers. We love fellow Christians. Whoever does not love abides in death. And I can show you verse after verse after verse that that says one of the clearest signs of salvation is love, and not just love, but love for fellow Christians. Love within the church. And Paul has heard of this church, this faith and love, and they weren't perfect. In fact, Paul writes this letter to encourage their faith, and also because they needed to hear about love. They needed unity. They needed the love more. But he has heard of their love. And because of this, Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that, and this is what Paul prays for the church. And I want you to think about this. This is written out so we would know what Paul would pray for our church. This is what Paul prayed for the church. Right? Inspired by God. And look what it says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. Paul is saying that he prays for this church over and over and over again that they would have knowledge. Knowledge. That's interesting, right? I mean, that's not what I would have expected Paul to pray for. Just... He had to write it down to, for me to see that. It's not what I would have thought. I mean, he doesn't pray for health. He doesn't pray for safety. A church that's heavily persecuted. Read Acts. Doesn't pray for safety. Doesn't pray for boldness even. He doesn't even pray for godliness. Now, and don't get me wrong. Uh, Paul wants all of these things to be true for them. Especially boldness and godliness. But that's not what he prays for. Look what he says, verse 17, that, this is what I pray, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know. He prays for knowledge. Look at verse 17, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in Greek, there's no definite article in front of spirit, right? The word the, it's not there. So a word-for-word translation would be like this. May give you spirit of wisdom and of revelation. The word spirit doesn't have an article. Therefore, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean a couple of things. Paul could be referring to when he prays for the spirit. He could be saying a spirit, a spirit of wisdom, he could be talking about the human spirit, that you would have a spirit, your, your human spirit would be a spirit of wisdom, that we would have within us a spirit of wisdom, our own spirit would be wise, in other words. Could be what Paul is praying for. Right? That's a legitimate translation. Paul could have been referring to an attitude of wisdom, right? a disposition of wisdom, a spirit that just kind of surrounds us, that's just wise. Remember the, the word for spirit in Greek is pneuma, which is the same word for air. Right? It could just be in this air that surrounds us that is wisdom. Or, Paul could be referring to the Holy Spirit. Typically, when the Holy Spirit is referenced, it's the Spirit. The Holy Spirit. But sometimes, it, it, it's, it doesn't have the definite article, and it's talking about the Holy Spirit. So it could be the Holy Spirit. And I lean towards this direction because of one word. Revelation. Look at verse 17 again. The spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Only the Holy Spirit gives us revelation. Revelation is knowledge revealed to us. That's why we call this revelation. It's knowledge revealed to us. So I think Paul is praying that the church would have the wisdom of the Spirit that is revealed to us through the Scriptures. It's revealed to us. Look at verse 17 again. Paul is praying, God may, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Now this is an interesting phrase. The eyes of your heart enlightened. Again, a word-for-word translation would look something like this. 
enlightening the eyes of your heart. Enlightening the eyes of your heart. The reason the ESV translates it, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, is because of the word enlightening or enlighten. It's a perfect passive participle. Perfect passive participle. What's that mean? Well, the perfect is the tense. It's like past tense, future tense. The perfect tense is something that has happened to you in the past that affects the present. In Greek, the perfect tense is something that happened to you in the past that affects the present, or something you did in the past that affects the present, an action in the past that affects now. The passive voice means it's something that happened to you. It's not something you did. So when you put these two this tense and this voice together, it's something that has happened to you in the past that affects the present. Look at verse 18. That's why it's translated, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's pointing, this is pointing back to your salvation. And for us that are saved this morning, it's pointing back to our new birth out salvation. The eyes of your heart were enlightened. You didn't do that. Passive voice. It happened to you at salvation. And it affects the present. Something happened at salvation that you still feel the effects of right now. That's the perfect tense. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. In other words, at salvation, your heart was given sight. Our dead hearts of stone that were blind came hearts of flesh with sight. Well, it leads to the question, what is the heart? Scripturally, what is the heart? And this is very important because our culture has equated the heart to emotions. When we hear the heart in, in, in a modern society and Western civilization, it, it, usually we think of emotions. And I believe this is because emotions have taken a priority in Western civilization. In other words, we interpret the world through our emotions and experience. Not through truth and knowledge. What I feel, in other words, has taken priority to what I know. But in most ancient cultures, including Hebrew and Greek and when the Bible was written, the heart was more the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. In fact, emotions and feelings, and you see this throughout Scripture, were mo- more associated with the stomach or bowels or intestines or gut. Right? We still see that sometimes. I have a gut feeling. Biblically, and this is really important, biblically the heart is three things. We, we see this word and this concept of the heart throughout Scripture. Biblically, if you, if you look through Scripture, the heart really represents three things. It represents your thinking your desire, and your will. And, and, and this is really important. Your thinking will influence your desire. Your desire will determine your choices, your will. That's why thinking is so important. So scripturally, when you see the word heart, it's probably better to actually think of your mind. To think of your mind. So when Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, He's talking about your mind, your desire, and your will. Right? Your thinking. He's not necessarily talking about your feelings. One pastor said it this way. 
Emotions have a significant place in the Christian life. And I want to pause there. You hear that? Emotions are important. They have a significant place in the Christian life. But they are reliable only as they are guided and controlled by God's truth. Which we come to know and understand through our minds. When you were saved, your heart, your mind, your heart was enlightened to truth and knowledge. And that truth and knowledge should control your emotions and interpret our experience. We should always interpret our experience and emotions through the lens of Scripture and never the other way around. Right, listen, Friday it hit me that I was letting my emotions control my thinking. I was thinking, woe is me. Right? I was like Isaiah in the throne room of God, like I'm, I'm going to be undone because of this power outage. Right? <laughs> I have it so hard. You know what I should have been thinking? I should have been thinking this is an inconvenience for sure. But I am so blessed. I'm so blessed. Here's what Paul is praying. Look, look, at, look at this again. Look at verse 17. That the church would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him that they, in other words, would, would walk in the spirit. This is what he's praying for. That they would, would listen to the spirit and know the revelation of the spirit. Right, who wrote scripture? Who's the author of scripture? It's actually somewhat a tricky question, right? But let me say it this way. Who's the ultimate author of Scripture? God. Okay, in the, in the Godhead, who is the author of Scripture? The Holy Spirit. He's the author of Revelation. You want to be spiritual? Let me just side note. You want to be spiritual? Get in the Bible. He is the author. I see people all the time trying to be spiritual and know nothing about this. That's not, that's not the Holy Spirit spiritual. That's some other spirit. He's the author of Scripture. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. He's saying, Paul is saying, you, you, you have had your eyes of your hearts enlightened. This is what happened at salvation. Therefore, I want you to know. I want you to know. And Paul wants them to know three things. Look at verse 18. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's really verses 3 through 14. We've been talking about this for weeks now. And the third thing in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? We're going to spend some time next week on verse 19 there. Paul obviously wanted to emphasize that third point. I mean, look at the words he uses. Immeasurable greatness. His power toward us. Right? According to, to, to the working of his great might. <laughs> we'll spend some time on that next week. That's Paul's gratitude and prayer. I really wanted to spend a lot of time on the importance of knowledge this morning. And the importance of knowledge this morning. I mean, why would Paul pray this? I mean, Paul wants us to know, right? He wants us to know, have knowledge about how blessed we are. Why? 
Why is knowledge, why is truth, why is theology, why is doctrine so important? I want to spend some time just thinking deeply about that question because we live in one of the most confusing times in human history. The spirit of our age truly is a spirit of confusion. We live in a postmodern culture, and honestly, we're just feeling the effects of a postmodern culture. A culture that claims that there are no absolute truths. There are no objective truths. You can't know anything for sure. Therefore, because we can't know anything for sure and there's no truth outside of us, we only have personal experience and personal feelings. In other words, truth is not outside of us. It's inside of us. And it's subjective to your personal experience and your personal feelings. It can be molded into anything you want it to be. Listen, I say this, and, and we should have a heart and love and want to see the homosexual community be reached. But in our culture, I can say I feel like a girl, and it doesn't matter what objective truth says. Because truth is not outside of me, it's inside of me. That's, that's a lie. That's a lie. Truth is outside of us, and truth is found in here. We're seeing the effects of this philosophy, this postmodern culture. We're seeing the culture crumble around us. Things that used to be foundationally clear are just gone. We can't answer simple questions like what is gender? What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is a family? What is good? What is evil? What is a human being? What is a baby? What is murder? Those are foundational questions to civilization, and we can't answer any of them in our culture. The culture is crumbling. We live in an age of confusion, uncertainty, doubt, and skepticism. An age that claims you can't know anything for sure. It's an age of confusion, and this confusion, I want to be clear, has influenced the church. Right? It's influenced Christianity. And, and, and I want our church to be humble. I want all of us to be humble. We live in this culture. You better believe it's influenced your own thinking. We're not exempt to this. Truth is being attacked within the church, within Christianity. The importance of doctrine, theology, knowledge, deep teaching, deep study, it's all being attacked as unspiritual, unloving, not useful, cold, heartless. I mean, I just say those words, and I think some of you feel it. That's the influence of the culture, not from Scripture. Read First and Second Timothy. Read Titus. Right? The, the job of the pastor is to preach truth, to hold to sound doctrine. That's scripture. To protect the church from false belief, false doctrine. It's one of the qualifications of an elder. Titus. Those aren't cold, unloving, unspiritual, unuseful words. The spirit of this age is confusion. Listen, but the spirit of God is clarity. God 
is a God of clarity. God is a God of truth and reliability. God is a God of knowledge. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Beginning of conviction. Beginning of understanding. Beginning of standing on a firm foundation. Listen, as the culture crumbles around us, we need to be there. We need to be there pointing people to the truth. Objective foundational truth. You know, I, I, think, the, I think the culture, I think people are going to be so attracted to it. I, I think it's already happening in a lot of ways. There's a lot of young people that are just done with postmodernism, not having any foundation whatsoever, and they look around and they see People with foundations. They see families that make sense, that have conviction. They see churches that have conviction and they're attracted to them. We need to be a church of conviction. Listen to what Paul prays. This is what he prays for the church, that that we would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of, of your heart enlightened that you may know. Paul wants the church to have knowledge. Listen, Concrete, foundational, objective, true knowledge. Knowledge that leads to conviction. Let me just ask this question. It's an important question. You may have never asked this question before. What's the purpose of the church? What's the purpose of, when I say the church, because we are the church. It's not the building. We all know that, right? Um, We're the church. What's the purpose of us? I want to be clear, it's not missions. I know you're like, well, you just preached last week it was missions. <laughs> no, it's not missions. That's our, that's our commission. That's our calling. That's, our, that's, our, that's what we're called to do, right? That's our privilege. It's not missions. It's not evangelism. It's not social justice. It's not taking care of the poor. It's not politics. It's to glorify God. It's to worship God purpose of the church is worship. And what is worship? Worship is the believer's wholehearted response of all that he is, mind, emotion, will, and body to all of who God is. It's passionate love for God. It's the greatest commandment. Love God with everything. That's worship. Worship happens when we value and love God more than anything else in this world. Worship, actually, if you think about it, comes from the word worth. When God is worth more than everything. It's not what we do when we sing Sunday mornings. It's a life. It's making God worth more than everything. In fact, if you would turn with me to Matthew thirteen forty-four, I love this, this verse sure we're familiar with it. I've preached on it a lot of times, and I will continue to preach on this verse for the years that I'm here, Lord willing. It's actually a parable that's so short, it's one verse. Matthew 13, 44. Matthew chapter 13 is a bunch of different parables that Jesus speaks. So look at verse 44. It says this, 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Just real quickly explain this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The parable is saying that, that the kingdom of heaven is valuable. It's like treasure. And why is the kingdom of heaven valuable? Why is it so valuable? Because God's there. Because God's there. The parable is telling us how valuable God is. How much God is worth. Look at it again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, there are three important words right there. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And a man finds this treasure and then in his joy, he sells everything. Sells everything. In other words, in his joy, joyfully, he trades everything. He sacrifices everything joyfully to gain this treasure. Only way someone sacrifices everything, trades everything, sells everything joyfully is that he knows what he is getting in return is worth extremely more than everything else in his life. I just picture this guy selling everything, his clothes, his, I guess not a car, a donkey, (laughs) his house, everything, his food. He's selling it all as he's whistling joyfully. You know he's getting that treasure. The parable is saying is God is so valuable, he is worth extremely more than anything in our lives. That's why a Christian should joyfully sacrifice everything. Right? Even life itself. That's why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why Paul was so joy-filled in all the suffering he went through. I have Christ. Christ is worth more than everything. That's worship. Right, that's love of God. That's worship. So what does worship have to do with knowledge? Listen, you can't have worship if you don't have knowledge. You can't have worship if you don't have knowledge. The knowledge of God, theology. And just think about this for a second. because That's almost become a bad word in our, in our Christian culture. Theology is, is theos, God, ology, study of. It's the study of God. How is that a bad thing? The knowledge of God, theology, is is foundational to our love and worship. Look at it again, verse verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Let me ask you a question. What changed? To make this man worship, put worth in this field. Did the field change? No. No. Did the treasure change? Did the value of the field and treasure change? No. The man's knowledge of the value of the the field. That's what changed. The value never changed. Only the man's knowledge. He learned how valuable the field was and he went and traded everything. He sold everything for it. In a similar way, God is infinitely valuable, but man is ignorant to his value. Therefore, we need the eyes of our heart to be enlightened. We need our blind eyes to see the value of God. But even after salvation, 
We need to study to learn more about his value. We need to study to learn more about his value. Listen, it's an endless study. Because God is infinitely valuable. You can never get to the end of him. I want to be very clear on this. Adoration or love, love and worship is more than just knowledge. But it's not less. Knowledge is foundational to love. Let me give you an example. I love my wife. I love Sarah. And my love is, is far more than just knowledge of Sarah. But it's not less. And my love started with knowledge. It started with knowledge. Knowledge is why I asked her out on our first date. I knew she was a Christian. right? Knowledge. I knew she loved Jesus. I saw it. I knew she was smart. I knew she was kind. I knew she she put others first. I knew she came from a great family. I knew she was beautiful. Like, these are knowledge. These are things I've observed. So I asked her out on a date. Went to Olive Garden. Spent a lot of money. (laughs) Now I have some gift cards. Thank you. (laughs) It helps. Guess what we did at Olive Garden? We talked. I asked questions. I, I got to know her. I studied her. I engaged in Sarahology. <laughs> Listen, we laugh about that, but but it's been ten years and I am still studying her and husbands. Study your wives. Study your wives. Ask questions. Get to know them better. Learn. Gain knowledge about them. My knowledge of Sarah grew, and as my knowledge of Sarah grew, so did my love. So did my love. I want to be clear on this again. My love for Sarah is much more than just knowledge. But it's not less. It's not less. Knowledge of Sarah is foundational to love. It's not just a feeling that I have for her. In the same way, our love and worship for God is much more than knowledge, but it's not less. Because the foundation of worship is knowledge. Let me read you a quote from R.C. Scroll. He said this, For the soul of a person to be inflamed with passion for the living God, passionate worship and love for God, that person's mind must first be informed about the character and will of God. There can be nothing in the emotions and passions that is not first in the mind. Look, I I don't enjoy picking on other churches or talking about Christianity as a whole But there's this movement in Christianity which is just mindless emotionalism. That's not true worship. Saying a word over and over again for 20 minutes is not true worship. Worship engages the mind and then the emotions. We have to be worshiping God, not some fake God that we don't know about. 
I want you to follow this logic. If worship is the ultimate purpose of the church, right? Our ultimate purpose as Christians, right? If worship is the ultimate purpose of the church, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If worship is the ultimate purpose of the church and knowledge, theology, right? And knowledge is foundational to worship. Then theology, the study of God, deep teaching, right? Deep study needs to be taken seriously within the church. And I believe that's why Paul prays that the church would have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that they would know. That they would know. Paul wanted the church to know who God is. Paul wanted the church to know how gracious he is towards us. He wanted the the church to know how blessed we are. So that they would have a burning passion to pursue him in worship. Now look at this. That's my prayer. It's my prayer that we we would have knowledge that leads to worship. Right? Ephesians. The depth of God's grace. Right? That's knowledge. That's chapters 1 through 3. There's no commands in that. That's Paul just telling us who God is, who we are, and what God has done for us. That's knowledge. The depth of God's grace lived out in love. That's worship. Chapters 4 through 6. That's worship. Paul starts with the foundation of knowledge. He doesn't give any command besides one, and the one command is remember. (laughs) Remember all of this. And then he gets to chapter 4 and says, now live this way. Now worship. I pray that our church understands the importance of knowledge, the importance of conviction, the importance of the truth that has been revealed to us and that we only worship standing on that truth. Otherwise, we might find ourselves in false worship. I pray that we are a light to this community as, as the the culture around us crumbles. I, I pray that people go, what's different with Country Oaks? There are people that seem like they have their feet on a solid foundation. What, what is it? And we can share truth with them. Truth, we can share knowledge with them, hoping that their hearts would be enlightened to that knowledge, to that truth. That's my prayer for our church. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, God, I thank you that you have revealed knowledge to us, and Lord, and that we have a firm foundation, God, and we see what happens when you get rid of that foundation, Lord. The the culture around us is crumbling because they have abandoned your word as a foundation. Western civilization that was built on theology, built on the study of God, built on, on the values of Christianity, have been abandoned, and now we're seeing it all crumble. pray that's not true for the church. That the church, Lord, has a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, Lord, that you have given us, Lord, that we dig deeply into your word, the truth that you have revealed to us so we can know more about you. You were men and women having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, Lord, that we were spiritually blind, dead. And you've given us hearts, Lord, that see, minds, See, see, not only truth, but the value of that truth, the value of you. I pray that we would know, Lord, you. 
we'd fall deeply in love with you as we learn more and more about you, that our, our love and worship just gets more and more intense to the point that we were willing to sacrifice everything. Like that man that found the treasure, that sold everything, that got rid of everything joyfully. Lord, I pray that's the testimony of our church. We so understand the value of who you are, Lord, that we are willing to sacrifice everything in pursuit of you. In pursuit of the reward, Lord, the reward is you. Help us, Lord. Give us that knowledge, Lord, that we can stand on. Open our hearts to the truth. In your son's name, amen.